We wanted to call out that a historic thing happened as this episode gets ready to be released, and that is that Deb Holland, um, who was one of the first elected uh, Native American representatives in the United States, has become the first cabinet secretary and is now secretary of the interior. So we celebrate that appointment and her confirmation and are really excited to see her journey. You know, that's another thing that indigenous people are often pushing up against when they're when they're covered related to to stories on climate change. I mean, research shows us, right, that academic research will show us that um, indigenous people are often um, portrayed as either victims or heroes. <laughs> and really, <laughs> that that leaves out a, a huge uh, spectrum and, and sort of multiplicity of the way that indigenous people are adapting to and interacting with with um, the, you know, the worlds that they're very much part of and situated in. Hello, uh, and welcome to How Do You Like It So Far, a podcast about popular culture and our changing world. I'm Colin McClay. And I'm Henry Jenkins. So this week, we're going to be talking about indigenous people here in the United States. And we're going to be speaking about uh, environmental justice questions with two native journalists, Julian Brave Noisecat, who, among other things, is uh, the Narrative Change Director of the National History Museum and uh, as an activist and a journalist who wrote a really amazing piece for the Columbia Journalism Review talking about the challenges of telling Native stories through traditional journalism. And Candace Callison, who is a former student of mine at MIT, who teaches at the University of British Columbia through the School of Journalism uh, and the Institute for Critical Indigenous Studies, who has um, written two books. One is How Climate Change Comes to Matter, The Communal Life of Facts. And more recently with Mary, Mary Lynn Young, she wrote a book, Reckoning, Journalism's Limits and Possibilities. So we're gonna be talking a lot about how newspapers and news media have failed to tell the story of Native peoples around the world. So, Julian, in your recent article in Columbia Journalism Review, you wrote, to be indigenous in North America is to be part of a post-apocalyptic community and experience. Why don't you unpack that for us a little bit? I think that a lot of my um, sort of first years as a journalist, so I've been I've been doing this work professionally for um, a little over half a decade now, uh, has been done through the prism of trying to um, explain indigenous stories and tap into indigenous stories through other existing narratives that exist out in the world. Um, and part of the reason why I've approached the work that way is um, that unfortunately in the United States, which is where I primarily practice journalism, although I do do some work in Canada as well, uh, Native people are not usually in the news. We're not really seen as 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 a story um, by much of the media. And so, um, you know, whether it be, uh, you know, conversations about marriage equality or climate change, um, et cetera, uh, you know, I often try to sort of enter into the Native story through other existing stories. Um, and one of the big ones, of course, over the last couple years. Um, we're in the middle of a pandemic, of course. Uh, and then, you know, before that, I think that there was a, 
a real sort of reckoning moment that we had with respect to um, runaway climate change, uh, particularly following following the UN IPCC report of warming greater than 1.5 degrees Celsius that came out in October of 2018, with um, you know the pet- potential for real earth shattering uh, events to be occurring within our lifetimes. Um, and you know, I was thinking about that broader story. Part of my life is also as sort of a think tank person in Washington D.C. And, you know, um, sort of reflecting on the ways that as Native people, we've, we've, we've already lived through um, sometimes in, in living memory and, and certainly within recent historical memory, earth shattering circumstances, apocalyptic circumstances. And I think that that experience um, lends, you know, significant insight to the presently and emergently apocalyptic circumstances that we see now in the world. Um, so that, that's sort of more or less the line of thinking that got me to, towards that. And I'm certainly not, I should add, uh, the first person to make that observation. I actually first heard, heard it said that way by a a Blackfoot filmmaker named Cowboy Smith X, uh, who, who said it actually, I think almost exactly like that, 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 that native people are post-apocalyptic people. And, you know, as journalists, we get the, we have the privilege of, listening to other people and, uh, you know, incorporating their very smart ideas into our own work. So. Uh, that puts things in perspective and it feels like that's it, it, both the kind of the work that both of you all do and the grand and, and certainly one of the grand challenges is for, you know, in cultures where native experience um, past and present in particular is so invisible to most of us, to most mainstream culture, um, to kind of offer that perspective that, you know what, we've, we've been through this before, or we've been through other, um, crises like this before in ways that perhaps, um, you all haven't or haven't realized. And it feels like that in the, in the journalism and the work that you both do of offering that deeper complexity, um, and context is like, the grand challenge. And I, I love, you know, the way that you kind of acknowledge how you enter into it. And I'm, I, I'm excited to get into that more, more deeply. And, and so maybe Candace, um, you know, going back to your, I guess, your dissertation work and to, you know, your earlier, what feels like dec- decades now, I guess, um, it would be great to, to talk about how you, you got into climate change or, and related topics, let's just say, uh, rather than kind of stick on any one nomenclature. Um, but, you know, and, and particularly acknowledging that in indigenous communities, climate change may be a contested term or a, a non-resident term or, or one that you don't even use. Yeah, um, you're making me feel old. We have a couple <laughs> decades. <laughs> well, wise baby, definitely not old. Yeah. Well, I'm good with being old. <laughs> that's, that's actually a really great thing about coming from an indigenous culture is getting old is really a good thing. Um, <laughs> I was talking with my uh, fellow podcaster on Media Indigenous. She was saying, you know, I wasn't allowed to speak until I was 30. Like, <laughs> there is there is some kind of... Um, you know, uh, wisdom that comes with uh, digging deeply into something for a, a long period of time um, and getting familiar with the way that people talk about it. When I wrote the book, you know, I was, I was building on um, a lot of uh, conversations about climate change that 
really were outside the very sort of science policy media framework of the way that climate change was talked about. Um, and particularly when I went to Inuit communities in Alaska and in Canada and talked to them about how they were thinking and talking about climate change, there was a way that it was talked about in the village, which was quite separate um, than the way it was talked about in these sort of transnational policy uh, forums than it was talked about in domestic sort of policy frameworks. And to me, that was super interesting because you had people like Sheila Watt-Poutier and Patricia Cochran who were really working very hard to do that translation work, you know, sort of back and forth, being accountable to their communities, but also talking in these these bigger frameworks. And I think now Indigenous communities have really recognized um, the ways in which climate change is a conversation that they must be part of. But they have to also be part of it in on their own terms. And this is where I think Julian's work is really important as a journalist, because talking about it on your own terms really means recognizing the deep history and context that you're living with, not just environmental context, but the historical context. And, and this is where, you know, the ways in which the mythologies of the founding of Canada and the U.S. do no favors, right, both to, you know, mainstream audiences, but particularly to Indigenous communities who are absolutely in conversation with, you know, colonialism as a concept, as a specific history that they've experienced, and the ways in which systems and structures were built either to disappear Indigenous people or specifically not to serve them. And so thinking about how these systems and structures can you know, serve indigenous people better is also contending with the fact that they were specifically set up to not serve indigenous people. And so really holding systems and structures to account involves actually this articulation around apocalypse. This isn't the first crisis or the only crisis that indigenous people are facing. And, and when I talked to Inuit leaders, that just came through so clearly, even you know, 10, 15 years ago, that you know, climate change is really the most recent layer. And I would say that's indicative of my own community as well, as we are, we're facing fires, right? Our, our, our concerns are quite different. We're facing um, changes to caribou and salmon populations. And uh, you know, so as we think about those concerns and think about you know, the, the broader discourse of climate change, it's really always a matter of, of, of thinking about how to um, you know, intervene, how to shift it, how to make it you know, specific and local and at the same time connected to the, the big global issues, which you know, Julian pointed out, right? Like, we are you know, well into a 12-year window that the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change has given us, right? <laughs> we, we're really looking at a, um, a very uh, rapidly changing world with severe consequences if changes aren't made now, right? So it's a shift in thinking that's required as well. In the book, you talk a lot of, you talk about traditional knowledge in tribal communities as a different epistemology than science discourse on these things. So what are some of the characteristics of this alternative way of knowing about climate and what has been, tell us a little more about the interface with science, the science community. I know you've started us down that path. Yeah, uh, you know, so traditional knowledge um, sometimes gets uh, confused as something in the past, right? So increasingly, I've started to refer to it as indigenous knowledge because it rec recognizes that 
Um, indigenous people are using their own frameworks, systems of observation, you know, oral histories to really understand the present moment as well as the past um, and to interface with science in particular ways. And so, you know, it's really only been um, in the late, uh, you know, 2010s, uh, 2015, really that you're starting to see um, Indigenous knowledge make it into the, the scientific conversation. So the, the Paris Agreement mentioned Indigenous knowledge, though it didn't necessarily mention Indigenous people. And so in some ways, <laughs> that's a problem, right? Because <laughs> Indigenous people are the holders of Indigenous knowledge. And and have expertise that is, you know, like not everybody who's indigenous is an expert in indigenous knowledge. I'm not. My dad is, but I'm not, right? So, so I think that's the other thing is that we have our own ways of, of um, elevating and understanding expertise. Um, it's rooted in, a, in what Robin Kimmerer, um, you know, the citizen Potawatomi biologist who's written a lot about this, would say the long relationship that indigenous people have been in with their lands and waters. And that really is, is a big part of indigenous knowledge is it's thought about as relations, even though, you know, indigenous people are very diverse, you know, there's so many different languages, so many different cultural frameworks, even within this umbrella we call indigenous, but, you know, that is a very common, uh, you know, denominator between all of these diverse indigenous communities is that it's about relations. And relations involve responsibilities, they involve obligations, you know, there's a, there's a history of relations and knowledge, and like that is, you know, something that's quite separate than the way that science often thinks about its measurements and observations. And it's not to say that Indigenous knowledge isn't also systematic, it is, right? Like there's these really important big cases where you see Inupiaq whalers were able to challenge the, the numbers that the... Um, International Whaling Commission was using in order to say, no, the, you know, the bowhead whale population is stable enough for us to do our traditional hunts, right? Because they were living in close relations um, and had a long relationship with bowhead whale populations, right? And, and because of that, have many care and obligation uh, and reciprocal kinds of practices that they do to to protect those relations. And so, you know, I would say that for for Teltan people, I'm, you know, a member of the Teltan nation. I belong to the Teltan nation. I'm a citizen, right? We have many ways of saying it. But for us, you know, those those similar obligations I understand through a framework related to salmon, related to caribou, related to, you know, other sorts of non-human populations and uh, and species. And so those relations are, you know, encoded in so many of our cultural practices. And that's really, you know, so sort of at the heart of when we talk about Indigenous knowledge, we're talking about long, deep relations. Um, and, you know, and that's it quite, it is, it's really quite different than the way that science apprehends the world. And yet the dominant way we have in media of talking about apprehending the natural world is based on science. And so, you know, that's another thing that Indigenous people are often pushing up against when they're when they're covered related to, to stories on climate change. I mean, research shows us, right, that academic research will show us that um, Indigenous people are often um, portrayed as either victims or heroes. <laughs> and, and really, <laughs> that, that leaves out a, a huge uh, spectrum and, and sort of multiplicity of the way that Indigenous people are adapting to and interacting with, with um, the, you know, the worlds that they're very much part of and situated in. 
can I just pick up on one teeny slice of that, all that insight, which it seems like one of the challenges is that science is like narrow and really deep, but it's super narrow and not connected systemically, right? It depends on your discipline and what the thing you're studying. And you're studying this like literally or figuratively microscopic thing, as opposed to the way that you described indigenous knowledge in which it's, it's a, there's a deep relationship and it can be deep. Um, however, it's also contextualized with other, you know, within the community, with other uh, parts of nature or other flora or fauna. And that sort of, it feels like that decontextualization is, you know, uh, runs through a lot of this where it's, you know, it's it's the fact that it's systemic and that it is part of a larger whole is a key, you know, key piece of this. But in science and in so much of reporting, we love to just be narrow on a particular topic. And that feels like that undermines, you know, the relationship and the complexity of the natural world and how we engage with it. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because um, when I was talking with um, this one particular Inupiaq elder who has passed on now, he talked about how he both had to um, be in a certain mindset to talk to uh, scientists, right? Like, <laughs> he sort of he had a way of talking about the language. world in which they could yeah right. that which they could interface and and it and that was an important skill right on behalf of community on behalf of um you know sort of uh, greater bodies of indigenous knowledge that he was you know part of and in conversation with scientists and and I think that that's uh, to me that was like indicative of other um experiences that I've had talking with elders, including elders within my own nation, that they want to know what science is saying. Mm -hmm. You know, sometimes science has a, a bigger global view of things. Sometimes what it does is provide a framework that they can plug local observations into. But sometimes you're right, it is so narrow and so deep that, you know, it's sort of like, well, that, oh, that's that, you know, that makes sense in my framework, you know, so I think like, that conversation is um, is very much worth having uh, between indigenous knowledge holders and scientists, and I, and I think um, increasingly, it, you know, there's a value placed on it. But it's still, I think, a really difficult road for um, for indigenous people who are working with scientists. I mean, so even in my like, I'm you know, I'm a social scientist, <laughs> I don't, and I don't claim to be an expert knowledge holder. But I've had scientists come up to me and say. Well, you know, indigenous knowledge is not very useful. You know, it didn't solve measles. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. So that's your metric. Uh, you know, so maybe you need to think more broadly about your metric uh, you know, <laughs> and, and think about, you know, knowledge as, you know, a, a not necessarily based on the outcomes that you're measuring for, but uh, really think very closely about, um, you know, sort of wh where methods and uh, findings are useful and, and really Indigenous knowledge allows you to think more broadly about things like responsibility. And and then and that feels like that's that's sort of connecting back to what you were saying, Julian. Too, it's like you're you two and other indigenous communities are doing the work of like trying to translate, you know, trying to reach uh, to you know kind of science or policy or mainstream media. Um, but the, the, like the burden is placed on you to do that work, as opposed to the scientists saying, "Well, I, I need to learn to speak and to to learn how to kind of translate my understanding and how to understand 
traditional or indigenous knowledge in these ways that that can put those two different or the different kinds of knowledge sweat seats uh, suites and perspectives together yeah i mean i think that um in many ways i think about journalism and communication more broadly as as fundamentally being about you know translating across differences and across silos of knowledge of community of understanding etc and um you know as a as a native journalist i uh and writer i often have to you know think about the fact that most of my readers are non-native just by you know by the function of society today right um and you know i want to write stories that uh on the one hand you know are engaging compelling and informative to non-native readers but also you know make um native readers feel seen and representative right um there's like a need and desire to to write for both audiences um and i think that another thing that i see fairly often is that there are these various and i don't think that this is actually necessarily even particular to um indigenous people and indigenous knowledge, but there are these various sort of fields of knowledge that themselves require so much training, so many years of study um, to even, you know, rise to become one of the sort of masters of that field uh, that you have to be very insular and focused on your thing. And so you end up with these circumstances where, you know, for example, in the field of, of, of climate change, um, the climate scientists and the energy modelers actually don't mm. talk to each other nearly as much as you'd think they do. Mm. Um, these are very siloed bodies of knowledge that once in a while respond to each other, mm. but mostly are focused on themselves. And I think that that's true across a, a, a broad spectrum of um, areas of expertise and, and communities more broadly. I think expertise also sort of suggests like that only people who have PhDs have them. And I, I very much disagree with that sort of conception of it. I think that everybody has expertise in all sorts of different things that are valuable. Um, and I think that one of the exciting things about being a journalist is that like, you know, we get to call people up or we should call people up or go visit with them and like, you know, put various voices and fields of knowledge into conversation that maybe aren't, um, always in dialogue in that kind of a way. And uh, I don't know, I find that to be a really, um, a really cool thing to get to do, to talk to all these smart people who, you know, have thoughts and ideas and perspectives that are informed by, in many instances, you know, a whole canon and, and, and generations of history, uh, you know, in conversation with one another in one, in one piece of, of writing or, or work of, of journalism. And so one of the ways that you've done that is, is really connect climate change with poverty and resilience and colonization, genocide, all, all kind of all these other system syndemics to borrow a term that Candace has used. And I wonder if you could also if you could help walk us through some of that, those those relationships between climate and other things that uh, these other um, existential issues. Candace, I think you have to explain what a syndemic is. <laughs> <laughs> Both people just say like multiple pandemics, right? 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I know that actually I had a bunch of people email me this morning and say, I had to look up syndemic. Well, there's a link in the article, you know? <laughs> yeah, I know. Exactly. Um, yeah. So, I mean, syndemic is basically um, a, a, like a conceptual term to think about how a pandemic like COVID-19 really interacts with, you know, larger political, economic and social factors. So, you know, this is where uh, all of the, you know, early reporting on uh, COVID-19 was actually really kind of bizarrely focused on baking bread and, you know, <laughs> those sorts of things. Uh, when, you know, in fact, it was hitting um, communities of color, Black, Indigenous, other communities really, really hard. Um, and and hitting it, it you know, hitting it hard, particularly because of the other challenges that were in place, access to clean drinking water, um, access to healthcare, access to non-racist healthcare, right? So all of those factors really cr created a, a bigger problem than, you know, only COVID-19. In fact, it was layered on, to, you know, COVID-19 layered on to these already existing issues and problems and concerns that communities had. So, so I think like, you know, racialized communities are, you know, are, um, you know, a particular Risk. I mean, if you look at a lot of the statistics around COVID-19, you see um, how it's, you know, primarily, um, you know, black children who have suffered from some of these really harsh um, sort of COVID um, complications. Right. And why is that? Because their communities have been at, you know, higher proportion of getting COVID. Right. And so, then you know, if you start to ask those why questions, you get into um, you know, sort of a broader set of problems that are both unrelated to and uh, deeply impactful as to what communities can do to respond to something like COVID-19. So that's my long explanation of syndemic. But but I, I, I think we need something like that for climate change, right? Like, you know, um, the piece you did for Columbia Journalism Review, Julian, was really, I think, getting at that, getting at this this, you know, the underlying underlying um, challenges and historical context, and even this concept of being post-apocalyptic. In other words, we've been through a few apocalypses, as, you know, as diverse Indigenous people, and, and the primary one being, uh, you know, colonialism in all its many forms and, and mutations over time. My general assessment of the sort of media and sort of assorted fields of uh, expertise and advocacy and engagement related to climate is that I think people and environment is that people are starting to, um, you know, really engage with the, um, there's just broadly speaking, I think, increasing interest in inequality and injustice in society. I think it's increasingly a focus of politics and um, journalism. and you know, I think that uh, more and more of the outlets that cover climate change and pollution, you know, are paying attention to the ways that, uh, you know, those layer onto those 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 phenomenon uh, layer onto you know existing uh, economic, racial, gender, other forms of of inequality. I think that. The part where there still seems to be, in my mind, um, 
a lot of opportunity for conceptual connection and then also real sort of narrative connection. Um, are the stories that that inequality is adding onto? Um, you know, what what is the through line? If and you know, this is essentially what I was thinking about in the Columbia Journalism Review piece. What is the through line? What of the like sort of not you know one week story, but two hundred year story? If you go to um, a place like you know, Pine Ridge in South Dakota to a place like the site of the Wounded Knee Massacre, uh, where you have, you know, a history of one of the most awful um, mass killings of Native people in, in, in history, uh, where you also have the history of one of the most visible moments of Native resistance and protest um, in the 1900s. And then you also now have uh, you know, the impacts of, of climate change increasingly transforming um, and in many instances devastating this landscape. And so what is the through line between that longer piece of, of, of history? And I think there, you know, um, I think that the way that I decided to put that together was very focused on the notion of apocalypse and post-apocalypse. Um, and I think that in, in many other um, you know, community contexts. I think that there are similar stories that can be um, visited and 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 uh, you know thought of uh, in that longer frame. And I just think that there's so many stories out there that that probably are yet to be told um, with that kind of an eye towards the the facts of the material. Yeah, you're raising an interesting question about some of the structural challenges of telling those stories. One of the ones you just alluded to was temporality. The fact that we call it the news means that we don't go back very far, that we erase history, and we don't go forward very far, which makes climate change a particularly difficult story to ch tell. But another might be the compartmentalization of the newspaper, where science reporting and political reporting are seen as fundamentally different things. And so the expectation is the science journalist just covers the facts as scientists know it, and the political stuff is separatable from that. And you're both arguing, I think, we can't separate those things out in that way. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I, um, I often say climate change should be the center of business coverage, right? Like, actually, we should be mm -hmm. always asking those questions, which we're not, right? Like, economics ends up being the sort of primary rationale for how we think about what businesses are doing. And this, you know, new concept of social license only, you know, recently made its big splash, where as really, if you were always thinking about impacts and responsibilities and, and reciprocal you know, obligations, it really changes the way you think about, you know, business decisions or, um, you know, value all of those kinds of things. And, you know, environmental scholars have been thinking about valuation for a long time um, and, and thinking about alternative ways to, to measure value. But I, you know, I think climate change makes that work, you know, so much more urgent and particularly the onus then becomes on, you know, media to move some of this thinking into the way that we order and slaughter headlines and to the way that we think of what's an important story or how we cover a story. Um, even with all of the wildfires that have been happening in California, you know, it doesn't necessarily mean that 
newspapers are going to cover them as related to climate change. And, you know, that is a that is a real uh, pressing issue, right, to continue to connect not only events, but, you know, the, the, the underlying structures to, you know, this this larger problem that we're facing. Yeah, I think that that's a really good point. Um, and I do think that there is something temporally um, just sort of transformational about climate change specifically as an issue that I think forces us to reckon with that set of questions of the past and the future in ways that uh, I think other issues maybe don't necessarily in the same way. So I think that that's, I think that's very true. Another thing that I think about fairly often is, um, well, obviously, firstly, like the separation of various sort of, um, uh, you know, subjects in the media uh, prevents different things from being put together, uh, you know, into one story in ways that they might actually be in conversation in the real world and happening in the real world. And I think, you know, one of the sort of core arguments that I was advancing in the Columbia Journalism Review piece was that uh, I actually tend to think that, you know, the truth that's out there and the stories that are out there are just so big that it's sometimes hard to discipline them into the space of, of the story, which is a real challenge, I think, to the dominant forms of, of journalism. Um, another thing that I didn't get into in that piece, though, is uh, I think partially a question of audience, you know, who the imagined audience, consumer, and subject of the news is. And, you know, I, I think, you know, for example, if you go, I grew up in Oakland, California, and if you go into a black church on a Sunday in Oakland, there is hundreds of years of history in that room. And it's, it's acknowledged in every single sermon, you know, everybody understands themselves in that room to be um, in that church to be part of, uh, you know, multi-generational hundreds of years long struggle for freedom that's continuing today. And, you know, the news that has been produced by Black newspapers and Black journalists is much more attentive to that reality. Um, and so I think that there's almost a way in which, uh, you know, the imagined often white, often male subject uh, and consumer and, and audience for the news is sort of relieved of those burdens of the past um, and uh, sort of concerns in some in some senses of the future, and I think that that's in part because um, we've been writing with that kind of uh, you know audience and subject and consumer in in mind. Well, another way that the compartmentalization works in the news is to separate geographies out. So, Julian, you've been writing about Standing Rock, for example whereas Candace has been writing about the Arctic. And yet I rarely see any coverage that makes the connections across those two struggles uh, as they affect environmental justice questions. And I wonder what we would see if we brought those two things into dialogue with each other. Well, I mean, I think that one of the interesting like things about uh, you know Indian country essentially today is that um, the internet creates these networks that, you know, bridge immense uh, geographic gaps, 
um, and connect people, you know, across common experience and common political struggle uh, in ways that, you know, it was very difficult to do. It was not impossible. You know, there are really incredible stories about, um, you know, various uh, my my good friend, for example, this guy named Ren Shortbull, his great 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 grandfather, or something like that, uh, went to um, the Paiute uh, Messiah Wavoka, the guy who was the leader of the Ghost Dance Faith, and was the one who brought back the the story, the the songs of the Ghost Dance to um, to his people, the Lakota people, and. Um, you know, so those sort of connections, I guess what I'm saying, across time and space existed historically as well. And people put in great effort to make them, actually. Um, but, you know, the Internet makes it a lot easier now. And so you have things like, uh, you know, Maori doing the haka in solidarity with, you know, the water protectors at Standing Rock. And people um, increasingly, I would say, particularly in my generation, uh, adopting... Uh, a self-conception and identity as indigenous, which is, you know, um, very often a transnational and even international identity, right? Um, the the last uh, Native American Indigenous Studies Association conference was actually held in New Zealand at the University of Waikato, right? Um, and very often the sort of writers and experts in that field are in dialogue with um, other indigenous scholars across borders. And, you know, I think that that's a very, I mean, the internet sucks in a lot of ways and is bad, um, but that ability to connect people, I think particularly for indigenous peoples who are often, you know, significant minorities in, in the countries where we reside, who often feel invisibilized in those contexts, um, the ability to create those connections, to create those, those dialogues and to create that sense of common community is, is really powerful. Um, and then also, you know, often brings up conversations about um, the ways that we are in common, in common cause, and then also our differences, which are are many. Yeah, I would. I mean, I agree with everything Julian said. I mean, because social movements have really transformed um, the connectedness, and a lot of those social movements have used social media tools in really innovative ways. And I think. You know, whenever I have to write grants about Indigenous media, I always start with the, okay, Indigenous people have used every piece of technology that's come along to build connections and alliances. And, and you know, right from like bulletin boards and emails all, all the way through to Twitter and Facebook, right? Like this is the, you know, the, the kind of practice of always uh, being, um, you know, aware of, you know, resilience, resistance, all of those kind of buzzwords really they're very much embodied in the way that uh, Indigenous people have utilized technology. And so, you know, there's Standing Rock, but there's I Don't Know More before that. There's Mauna Kea after that. There, you know, so I think like um, for me, at least in the last 10 years, I feel like I've become a real student of social movements and how they have, you know, continually mobilized in various ways. And, and not that the technology makes a difference, but it becomes yet another tool in the toolkit uh, of organizing. And that said, right, like the, the thing that I think, Henry, you're pointing to with the question is the way in which mainstream media often just drops in, right? Oh, Standing Rock, we better cover that. That's kind of interesting. 
um, you know, you get some good coverage. And some of that good coverage is because Indigenous journalists like Julian are in those organizations or filing to them or get tapped as a freelancer. Um, but, you know, oftentimes, um, you, know, you know, how many times has the New York Times, for example, gone to the Arctic and told some crappy story about poverty and drugs? And, you know, the most recent one that I often teach with is this article by Catherine Porter, which, you know, Inuit have spoken out in, uh, you know, many formats and forms about, right? She, she went up there and Catherine Porter went up there and talked to a lot of people and then ended up with this story about um, an Inuk artist who, um, you know, had been through a lot of traumatic experiences, but was this incredible emerging artist. But you don't even get a focus on the art in the piece. Instead, it's all, you know, what we would call trauma porn. Um, and, it, you know, <laughs> it's it, Naja, the Native American Journalists Association, called for an apology twice from the New York Times, you know, no response. But, you know, in part, that's it, right? It, it, it's the, the victim hero problem. It's where you go and cover um, a region or an area and you don't connect it up to larger indigenous concerns. You, you maybe just focus on um, an individual or you focus on the, the narratives that have been you know, repeated over and over by your news organization or by news in general. And so I think this is where, um, this is where indigenous journalism really matters, like the approaches that Julian and others are taking. Um, and, and as we see you know, organizations like Indian Country Today and APTN in Canada and the many indigenous podcasts, I'm part of one, but there's actually quite a lot of them now, um, you know, that are really uh, tackling issues from indigenous perspective. They're making those broader connections, I think, in powerful ways, in ways that mainstream media often misses. Yeah, I mean, this is the reporting on instead of reporting with or, you know, and, and the lack of sustained engagement with that community. I mean, like literally parachute journalism in, as you're describing, in kind of what seems like the worst possible way, as opposed to having a sustained relationship. And this is something that we see, right? And I don't, I'm not sure the, the current term of art around ethnic media also in the United States, where there's a different sort of trust. In the, in the way that Julian was talking about, you know, um, black um, uh, papers covering the church or, you know, and, and acknowledging history in, in, in Los Angeles, for instance, where we have lots of different ethnic media, there's just a different kind of trust and relationship and, and sustained connection where journalists are seen as part of the community in a different way, as opposed to what sounds like you're more like a destroyer of the community, picking one little piece and, you know, telling a, a disconnected story that gets a headline and clicks, but doesn't really inform us in an accurate way. And then just perpetuates those stereotypes. Um, and, and the, you know, the kind of builds on the trauma porn. The one thing that that brings up for me is that like, I think journalists really have a hard time thinking of themselves as powerful mm. um, and as, you know, agents actually. Um, I think that uh, journalists would pretend would, would often prefer to view themselves as sort of, um, you know, sort of passive observers who are just telling the facts and, you know, almost like a camera or a stenographer. Um, but, you know, I mean, uh, particularly in the social movement context, but I think virtually in every story, um, the media is a significant player, right? Like how various outlets decide to tell the story, decide to cover the story, which facts they decide to emphasize, uh, it really is 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 very um, 
shapes outcomes in the real world in in many ways, particularly if you're talking about a social movement that's you know aiming for particular political changes or policy changes, right? Uh, the way in which that is covered and who is highlighted, whose voices are uplifted, et cetera, um, has ripple effects for which organizations might get funding, mm. you know, which politicians feel the pressure, what sort of policy changes are highlighted as being you know, on the table, um, all those sorts of things. And I think that the the responsible way to deal with that, in my view, is is for you know members of the press to recognize that they have that power and to use that power, um, you know, thoughtfully and responsibly, rather than to you know pretend as though it's it's not there. So so we've been talking a lot about the limits and uh, structural limits of the existing frames for telling these stories many of which are just seem embedded in the way American journalism has historically worked. So how do we change the way the story is told? Or what's the best venues, the best frames for thinking about telling the indigenous story of climate change differently? So I just finished writing this uh, book, I guess it's out for a year now, but with my UBC colleague, Mary Lynn Young, and I, we wrote this book called Reckoning. Um, <laughs> the title actually was long before, yeah, I, <laughs> long before we yeah. Reckoning became the word du jour. Um, but yeah, it's, it's about, you know, the subtitle is Journalism's Limits and Possibilities. Essentially, it's, you know, a recognition that journalism is very powerful, as Julian put it. Like it, it can and does open our eyes, shine light. You know, it can be this very powerful tool. Um, but it also is mired in a lot of um, structural constraints, some of which are related to the forms and styles we have for journalism, you know, and some of which are related to sort of old, tired norms and practices mm. around things like objectivity, right, around things like thinking that um, you, you can parachute into a place, around things like, you know, being resistant to collaborating with the very people that you are telling stories about, right? So th those sorts of um, resistances, right, you know, have been resolved in really interesting ways, I think, by Indigenous journalists. We do a chapter on Indigenous journalists in part because they think differently about accountability often. You know, they think differently about their connection to community. They think differently about history, right? I love to quote um, Jenny Monet, who's a Laguna Pueblo journalist, who says, you know, it's not just about knowing your history, it's about knowing when it's relevant, you know, to whatever it is that you're covering. And that sort of, that way of thinking about yourself as always in context. I mean, I think the, the story Julian told about black churches in Oakland, like that, you know, you could, you could tell that story also about indigenous people when it comes to climate change, right? This is recognition of, you know, watching change over, uh, you know, millennia since what we say since time immemorial, which a archeologist recently told me is basically, after 10,000 years back, we just think, you know, it's, it's not worth counting uh, because, like, but really that's, you know, indigenous people think with this, this deeper sort of sense of history and relations. And I think like that to me brings a real difference and a change to the narrative. And I, and I think, you know, a lot of racialized communities 
bring you know various kinds of perspectives that are rooted in their in their histories as communities, um, but are also rooted in the kinds of harm that mainstream media and and media in general have done to communities in the way that they've covered narratives in the way that they've created stereotypes that persist and whilst they change over time they remain durable right there's quite a lot of scholarship about that especially around indigenous people in Canada that hasn't been done in the US but I think you could tell very similar stories about you know uh, sort of the repetition of certain kinds of ways of seeing indigenous people as for example in the past instead of in the present or in the future um, uh, Henry you had brought up Grace Dillon who I'm a huge fan of but like this this um, Oh, sorry, in your previous correspondence, but I, I, I'm like I, I'm super interested in the ways in which creative uh, fiction and nonfiction is really thinking about indigenous people in the future as part of future, as you know, just really that uh, that that futurism as a way of signaling that we have always been and we will continue, right? Like these sorts of of uh, frameworks really haven't necessarily been applied to coverage of indigenous stories, narratives, people, communities. Yeah, I think that those, the, the sort of depth of um, a sense of relation and a depth of a sense of, uh, you know, relevant experience and time is a really important one. Um, I mean, I think just fairly straightforwardly, I think that who's telling the news matters a lot. <laughs> um, and, you know, I mean, if you go to, into the newsrooms of the New York Times, the Washington Post, any of the major cable networks, it'd be really hard to find an Indian. Um, and it'd be pretty hard to find a lot of other people of color, particularly in decision-making roles. Um, oh. And that's changing and it, and it needs to change faster. Um, I think at the same time, I, I, you know, I think that journalists of color face fairly unique, um, but common, um, you know, among various, um, folks I've talked to experiences in the media of, um, you know, sort of constantly, whether it be in sort of the assignment of stories or the way that stories are edited or, or positioned. Um, you know, sort of a tension between the way that we often see our people and our communities and the stories that exist there and the way that various outlets and publications see those stories and want to tell those stories. And, you know, I think that there's often, it's just speaking from my experience, a fair amount of, um, you know, having to work my editor a little bit to try to get them to see my people and see the story that I'm working on in the way that I see it and to try to convince them to, to see it that way. And I think over time, you know, all of those individual instances of trying to get the media to see us the way that we see ourselves, um, which I think is neither as heroes or, 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 or tragedies, but, you know, as, as very fascinating humans who have a range of experiences that all of which are worth um, examining and, 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 uh, you know, very often sharing with broader audiences. Um, I think that that's what, what sort of creates compelling stories. And at the end of the day, I think that all sorts of different people uh, can be interested in, in compelling stories. Um, and so very often, you know, I think about part of what, what I do as, you know, in a sense, 
uh, you know, trying to give the kind of representation in the press that I that I want to see mm. of of Native people. Um, and very recently, I think I've been doing that most prominently, probably regarding you know Deb Holland and her um, you know nomination as potentially the first ever Native Cabinet Secretary and Native Interior Secretary in. Um, United States history. And, you know, to be completely honest with you, I think I've been a fairly um, outspoken uh, advocate for her nomination, um, you know, which I think some people might view as crossing journalistic lines. But my view of it, uh, you know, is that I don't think that anybody else was going to get her story right mm. uh or there was a real risk that other people were not going to get you know non-native people were not going to get her story right um and that that would deprive you know i think of people who deserve this spot and a, a leader who deserved that nomination of the kind of um you know coverage and and um story that 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 she deserved and all of indian country deserved so what are some of the things you're you're seeing people get wrong about that nomination story? Oh God. Um so the the New York Times in particular. <laughs> Where did I, I feel bad for laughing at that, but just like, oh like sorry, sorry, sorry. Go on. Yeah, I didn't mean to So the, the I think that the uh the New York Times, for example, in the way that they covered Holland's um potential nomination before she was chosen by Biden was uh quite problematic and uh, like kind of under undermining of her um they positioned her as quote-unquote inexperienced um which I, I don't know rings of all sorts of biases to me and also they were willing to do that without ascribing who was saying that to the sources that were were saying it um which also in political journalism that's just like classic laundering of you know spin into news uh which i don't think you know, it's particularly worthy of being reported. Um, and, you know, secondly, they, they also did this thing that I thought was um, a, quite an interesting move, which is that they sort of pumped up uh, this other Native man, this guy named Michael Connor, who worked in the Interior Department under Obama as a potential other pick for Biden, when there was virtually nobody, I mean, with all due respect to, to Michael Connor, I think that he's actually a very good person, a good bureaucrat. There was nobody in Indian country who was writing letters in support of Michael Connor's nomination to the Interior Department, but they, you know, sort of allowed for this narrative to pop up where all these Native people were advocating for a Native Interior Secretary, and, you know, Deb Holland is the one who they're mostly focused on, but there's this other guy named Michael Connor, and that I thought was... Um, I think I, I described it to a friend as like them trying to make it like, as though any old Indian would, would do, um, which I thought was a, a, a quite cunning move on the Times part. Um, and then more recently, like last week before uh, Holland's uh, Senate confirmation hearing, uh, the same reporter uh, wrote about, uh, sort of really wrote this very, you know, sort of in the tone of there's a big sort of political controversy that's about to happen in the Senate. Uh, and, you know, Deb Holland, I think the, the the headline was that Deb Holland embodied the partisan chasm in United States politics, you know, basically sort of drumming up this controversy as though there was going to be a giant fight 
in the Senate um, about Deb Holland's confirmation, which like there was some Republican opposition. And I think that in many ways that was driven by um, biases that were, you know, pretty present in the room. But at the end of the day, it was like the, the narrative that this reporter was was putting out there did not end up being true because, you know, just earlier today before we started speaking, you know, Republican actually came out for Deb Holland. And the, the story of last week was not that Deb Holland's confirmation was getting, uh, you know, shot down by Republicans. It was that Neera Tandon's confirmation was, you know, uh, going through the partisan meat grinder. Um, and, you know, I, I get that, like... Uh, People have to sell newspapers and controversy is increasingly, I think, after the Trump era, the only register in which we understand politics, which I think is a real broader problem, that the only thing we know how to talk about is conflict. Um, but, you know, again, I, I think that if there were not Native people and journalists insisting that Holland's story was not the story of an inexperienced person who... Um, was solely being supported because of her racial background and who, you know, was a divisive partisan who Republicans would see as, you know, the embodiment of a bunch of left-wing environmental demands. Um, you know, I, I don't think that she would be on the brink of, of, of making history. And that's a real, really, really meaningful uh, real-world outcome that, you know, journalism could have gotten wrong. I mean, that just that takes me back to so many points earlier in this conversation about sort of like parachuting into that context and not understanding this, all the different things around, you know, that story in a way that, you know, just allows them to um, get it so terribly wrong and have an influence, um, which is really troubling. I hope they read your book. Times is incredibly powerful. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I mean, I, I, I mean, I read the articles you're talking about, and I was like, oh, controversy. My, my people are fully supportive of Deb Holland, and you know, so that's. Uh, thank you for sharing that. I mean, what I would say about that is that you know, at the end of the day, I don't even think it was that particular journalist's fault. I mean, I don't love this particular journalist and their work, um, but it's they were writing into an, a pre-existing form yeah. for these kinds of stories, right? Like there's a story about that's been written a million times about, you know, the, the nominee of one party goes into a committee hearing and gets grilled by the other party. Like that's a pre-existing story and it's a controversy and we put it on cable news and we're like, Oh, look at this. Um, and, you know, similarly, I think that there's a lot of stories out there about people of color and, and women not being quote unquote experienced enough for, um, you know, the jobs that they're, they're offered, uh, you know, uh, a notion of what experience means that is very exclusive of lots of experiences that I think matter a lot if you're going to hold public office. Um, and at the end of the day, you know, I think that the very baseline of, uh, in my view, this conversation is about, um, you know, opening up journalism to, uh, you know, a more compassionate reading of those experiences and, and communities. Um, and I think that the truth of the matter is that journalism and writers have been pretty abusive towards, um, in this instance, indigenous people and communities for far too long. Um, I've thought about many times how many American writers have killed Indians in their, in their novels or, you know, written us out of their their um, nonfiction accounts of, of U.S. history, 
And at the end of the day, you know, that's not a very thoughtful or loving thing to do towards the people. Um, and at the end of the day, I think what, you know, speaking for myself, what I want is, is, you know, uh, uh, a journalism, you know, that is loving and, and thoughtful towards, you know, people who I think des are deserving of, of love and thoughtfulness. Well, that's a good place to end. Yeah. So thank you both so much for uh, joining us today. Thanks for having us. And I'm so glad you, you're with us, Julia. This is really cool. It's great to be in conversation with you. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. Um, and the Totoro uh, painting behind you is really, really <laughs> cute story. It tied it all together. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
not really care about their interests or to actively undermine them, right? It was not so, so long ago that, you know, that folks in uh, in the Yukon were, you know, less than 50 years ago that were taken from their homes and educated in government schools in ways explicitly intended to undermine traditional culture and indigenous knowledge and so on. So I, you know, I think there's a, there a lot of hope and optimism and also recognition, again, of these challenges of interfacing with, whether it's with scientists or journalists, but interfacing with other communities in ways that don't place all the burden on the historically, you know, sort of attacked party, but do and do kind of release um, their potential in, in ways that, that are, you know, appropriate to them, but also that will benefit the rest of us. Yeah, so uh, Candace spoke of the journalism as another of those institutions that was actively established to harm Native Americans rather than to be a vehicle for telling their own stories. And we know that there have been Native newspapers going back a long, long time. There's a strong tradition of a Native press in America. But it's clear that the way we tell stories through mainstream newspapers do damage to the contextualization of Native lives, to the telling of the story of their relationship to the environment. Um, I, you know, I, I've been teaching a journalism class this semester, and it's very clear that the students have a fairly narrow notion of time related to news grinded into their brains mm. by their early journalism teaching. I've been trying to push them to think, project into the future, to do more speculative journalism, but it is also the case that they're trained not to think very deeply into the past. Um, and that has consequences, I think, for telling this story. So we got some really good insights here on how to tell this Native stories differently through uh, American journalism and what happens, the struggles that Native journalists face in working with mainstream publications. Uh, I wanted to point to uh, a, a good example, not by a Native journalist team, but that did a particularly strong job of surfacing and amplifying Native voices. This was a documentary series that we did for, uh, that. We, uh, this is a documentary series that received recognition from the Peabody Awards last year. It's from a series called Threshold. It's called The Refugee. And over a series of article of pieces, uh, the reporters really got into the complexity of native response to the thought of drilling for oil on traditional tribal lands in Alaska. Uh, what it means for the livestock, what it means for their culture, what the pluses and minuses are. And you don't get a binary or simple depiction of the views there, but through mostly native voices, we understand the complexities of these issues and their, their impact they're likely to have on that community for a long time to come. Yeah, I, so I've started listening to season two of Threshold, which is kind of about Arctic people and change. Um, and you know, what I one of the things I like about it to, that tracks back to the conversation was it feels like there is 
more of an ongoing commitment. It is a sustained engagement over time with those communities in ways that um, place the journalists in them in some sense, right? As opposed to kind of a view from a, a real view from nowhere, it's a little more engaged. Uh, and also it's not just a one article flash in the pan, right? Th these are extended series. So it, it feels like it's, it's far from perfect, but it feels like a great, you know, a, a valuable step in that way. So I'm excited to listen to the rest of it. Well, it's been good. Uh, see you next week. For the next episode, we're going to dig in deeper into climate and speculative fiction, and in particular, solar punk. It's going to be a great show with um, Serena Ulibari, who is an author and an editor and general troublemaker in the solar punk genre in particular, and Ed Finn, who is the director of the Center for Science and the Imagination at Arizona State University and is leading all sorts of efforts uh, around solar punk. This show could not happen without our amazing production team, uh, which includes Josh Chang, Sophie Maggi, and Alexander Ye. They are all amazing and the core of our enterprise. We'll also thank the University of Southern California Annenberg School and the MacArthur Foundation for their support for our activities, even though we're no longer recording out of the wonderful studios at Annenberg but are recording wherever our laptop happens to be in any given moment of time. And most of the time, um, we are here in Los Angeles, uh, like the USC campus, which uh, rests on the historical lands of the Tongva and Gabrielino people. And we appreciate their stewardship. In addition to finding us wherever you find your podcasts, uh, we are on the web at howdoyoulikeitsofar.org, all one word, as it were, um, and uh, on social at H-D-Y-L-I-S-F, both on Twitter uh, and Instagram. So check us out. Say hello.